All right, let's, uh, let's say a prayer. Get started here. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength. Grant that we, whenever we look into your heavens, the work of your fingers, or look at the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, we may be ever grateful that you are mindful of us and that you care for us. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Okay. What are your questions? What kind of questions do you have? You sick of Mark yet? No? Good. I'm not sick of him either. Um, I mean, not, neither him nor the book that he wrote. I don't know. Um, this is one of the, so I'll just say, you know, one of the downsides of using the three-year lectionary that we use um, is that we only hear gospel readings from Mark once every three years. So, you, so pay attention. You'll notice this. Um, in church on Sunday mornings, we are reading the gospels from Mark. Come Advent, we switch over to the next year in the series, the third year, and that's Luke. Um, and then the next year, we'll go back to Matthew. Um, so we get, we get a whole year with Mark. And this is, it's, there's something really nice about spending, spending time in close quarters with him for such an extended period of time. Um, and then, well, I guess the other side of it is we forget. And so we come back to it three years later and we remember all the things we learned. So, um, so all that is to say, I'm not sick of Mark yet. Um, and in fact, one of the things that's really struck me as we've been working on the end of Mark, especially from chapter 11 to the end, which is the Passion Week, right? So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday at the beginning of chapter 11, and it sets off this course of events. So, you know, notice the way the time changes in Mark. Up to that point, things have been happening quickly, rapidly. Time has been going flying by, and now we just slow down, okay? And the point is... um, I, th- I think the best way to, to get at or to appreciate what's going on is really just to listen closely, to just do careful reading. It's, it's much less, um, not, maybe not much less valuable, but it's a different and important exercise than, say, taking a small chunk and really digging into it. To, to help, it's helpful to look at the whole sweep of things. And so what I'm going to suggest we do today is, in fact, listen to Alec McCowan do a 10-minute ten, a ten chunk, if you're okay with that. I know, I know that... Uh, well, when I was in school and my teacher said to me, or the substitute teacher said, we're going to watch a movie today, you knew what that meant, right? Well, you were happy, but you also knew that the teacher hadn't prepared, which is not the point. That's not the thing. That's not what's going on today. I have prepared. But, um, but it's, so here's how I came to this. I wanted to start at chapter 14. We have just these 26 verses, 25 verses. Um, but he does a great job of giving us the change in tone. So chapter 13, what's chapter 13 about? What's from last week? What's chapter 13 about? Okay, good. Uh, how, did, how is it about the crucifixion? Uh, well, Pastor Nelson was telling us that Yeah, things are happening incrementally. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, although this is talking about the last days in a sense, it's, it's a sooner last day. Yeah, right, exactly. Also. Yeah, this is true of so much 
prophetic or apocryphal, or not apocryphal, apocalyptic um, writing in the Bible is that you get a both, uh, a both now and, and not yet, right? Um, it's, so the fancy word for it is inaugurated eschatology, right? So it's happening now, inauguration, right? That's when the president becomes the president, right? Inaugurated, so it's already happening now, but it's also about the last things. Eschatology is about the last things. So we have this strange thing that happens to time, where we are living both, uh, we're, we're alive right now, not having died yet, but we're also already dead and resurrected at the same time, right? So this sort of strange twilight zone that we live in right now, that, that sort of gives some sense to um, how you can have Jesus say prophetic things like, you'll see the abomination of the desolation sitting in, you know, where he ought not to stand. Um, and you can say to yourself, well, what's he talking about? Is he talking about the destruction of the temple in in 70 AD, is he talking about um, the stuff that we hear about in Revelation? Um, is he talking about something that happens um, immediately afterwards? Well, in some sense, he's talking about all three. And the imp- an important thing to note, I mean, just to, this is everything. The cross, the crucifixion, that is the liminal moment in history. Everything turns on that moment. And so in some sense, you can say the end begins Right then. And how do we, I mean, think about what happens. What happens when Jesus is crucified? What kinds of things happen in the world when Jesus is crucified? An earthquake? Yep, earthquake. Darkness. The curtain. I mean, think about it. Think about the destruction of the temple. It's beginning. The temple is, the curtain is torn in two. Of course, even then you get this sense, right? It's, it actually had begun before because he had come in and driven out the money changers. He's been, so you get this, this turning point where he had been prophesying it. This is what's going to happen. And he's pronouncing judgment, pronouncing judgment and mercy. And now, on the cross, now it's, he's delivering it. It's happening. It's executing the, the judgment and the mercy. Um, and so, in um, a puzzling, sort of confusing way, chapter 13 is both about the crucifixion. It's about the, temp- the, the fi- you know, final raising of the temple in AD 70. It's talking about everything we see right now in the world, right? Um, the signs that you do see in the world, that the end of the ages is upon us, right? Um, you see those things. It's also talking about what's yet to come. Um, and that, that's, that's really important for understanding what comes next in chapter 14. Um, and this is why we had to sort of lead into it. I, I realized I just gave you a whole... I, I wandered very far from what I was originally to say. So chapter 14, if we start at, cha- at verse 1, we miss this whole lead-up into it where Jesus is prophesying the end. And now, what happens in chapter 14, look at this. Um, this will help you as you hear it. Look at the sheet. So split it into two parts there. The first part is verses 1 through 11. And the second part is verses 12 through 25. Verses 1 through 11 come right on the heels of this, this uh, apocalyptic discourse. And this really strange thing happens. It's a Markin sandwich, okay? A Markin sandwich. We've got the scribes and the chief priests plotting in verses 1 and 2. And then verses 10 and 11, Judas joins in the plotting, okay? So those two things form the, the wonder bread in the sandwich, okay? And in the middle, you've got this bizarre occurrence where the woman comes and anoints Jesus not just with a little bit of ointment but with a year's you know with enough ointment that you could you could sell it and supply somebody's living for an entire year Um, and Jesus interprets this event for everybody 
He inter- he, and he has to interpret it for even his disciples um, who don't understand. Uh, because, in fact, they just heard him say, remember, they just heard him be very upset at the scribes and the rulers of the temple for abusing the poor. And now here's this person, you know, throwing away. I mean, so she's got this alabaster jar, and alabaster jars often had a, so like a long, thin neck to them so that the, the ointment would come out just drop by drop, right? But she doesn't just pour it out drop by drop, right? She breaks off the neck. And so, it's, I mean, it's just pouring out. Um, so they're, and they're confused about it. And Jesus explains, no, this is because the thing that's going to save you, the thing that's going to save the world is my death. And so it's completely fitting in this cosmic, you know, this cosmic view of history that you cannot see um, anointing me, anointing Jesus, who's your sacrifice, who's going to be buried, that is the most significant thing that could happen right now. Uh, but then it points ahead here now, the second chunk, the Passover celebration with the disciples, the, the institution of the Last Supper. Um, this is why Tintoretto's painting, take a look at this real quick. I'm, I'm not doing anything in any particular order here. This is stream of consciousness, okay? So just bear with me. Um, this is one of my favorite paintings. Um, it's the, the painting of the Last Supper by this guy, Jacobo Tintoretto. And he, in nearly in all the paintings that I've seen, does this beautiful juxtaposition of an ordinary thing. We've looked at this together, I think, perhaps in this class, right? This ordinary thing, this meal with all of these ordinary... I mean, you get all these strange details, like the little kitty cat drinking out of the pail right in the front and center, right? Somebody's cleaning up, and Jesus is, you know, going around feeding folks. Um, there's bread everywhere. But then up in the rafters, you have this heavenly realm, this, this stirring... And I think that's really valuable because when you read Mark's account of the Last Supper, it's really plain. It's really nothing, nothing fancy about it. Um, but set in the whole context of everything Jesus has just said and everything that's, um, that he's prophesied and the, the cosmic scale, again, the cosmic scale of what's happening, you can hear, you can feel in the background um, the utter, you know, utter seriousness of what's going on. And the reason why this is really valuable for us to study, why it's valuable for us to sort of slow down and just listen to it is because um, we are directly connected to this event that's recorded for us in Mark. I was thinking about, um, you know, Jesus rising from the dead. It's not the only resurrection story in history. There's a lot of mythology that incorporates resurrections, death and resurrection. And it's often tied with, say, like um, natural cycles, right? So like fall, winter, spring, that's, a, that's a, a resurrection story. And people have, throughout the ages, seen it that way. In fact, there's this ancient Egyptian myth. The god Osiris is killed by his younger brother. And there's a variety of ways the story is told, but he's put in the river and sent down the Nile River. Um, and then at some point, he's resurrected. His wife, Isis, um, cries such tears that the Nile floods, right? So this is given as an explanation for why the Nile floods so predictably every year. But then he's, he's resurrected, and he brings, you know, vengeance on his brother. Um, but the, the thing that's different about that story from this story is that, A, it's explicitly just a myth, Right? There was no guy, Osiris. No, it's, not, it's not purporting to be history. It's not telling us about something that happened at one particular point in history. It's saying, well, look, the world seems to die and rise every year. Isn't that interesting? Let's tell a story about it. That's not the way this is working. That's not what Mark is doing. Mark is saying, Jesus came around and he did all of these things 
this guy, Jesus, who was betrayed by that guy, Judas, who went into the upper room. It, it, you know, we went and talked to the guy who, who, to whom the room belonged. Um, we set the table. We ate with him. And he said these remarkable things. This is my body. This is my blood. That guy died and rose. And uh, now, we, in, in light of that, we can interpret everything that's going on in history, everything that's going on in our lives. This is not some myth. And it is, in fact... Um, what happens on a Sunday morning when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is directly connected to this historical event. It's not like we're connected in, you know, in spirit or in some sort of, um, uh, I don't know, some sort of mythological way to some idea. But we're connected to the person of Jesus by his very flesh and blood. The same flesh and blood that he, you know, he holds out to his disciples and crucifi- is crucified on the cross and pours out. Um, that's the flesh and blood that's here. If it wasn't the same flesh and blood, then we might as well just be worshiping Osiris and thinking, uh, you know, here we go. Here's a nice myth. So, so the point is, when we, when we, take, own, when we take stock of this, this story and hear it um, carefully, you begin to see, and I hope, I hope that you can begin to see how um, what Mark tells us is, is formative. It is everything. He is telling you um, those events that determine the rest of history, the rest of your life, and through which you should see all of your life. Um, and you should spend your life then um, coming to terms with understanding how this changes things for you. Okay? I was going to let Alec McCowan talk for 10 minutes. I'm going to do that now. Are you ready? We're going to, so here's the, here's, okay, so we're going to get a running start into Alec McCowan doing chapter 14. We're going to listen to chapter 13, and then... We'll get to chapter 14. There, the, your, your cue for it being chapter 14 will be that there's a long pause. So he gets up and walks around the table right before he begins chapter 14. Okay? Okay. We'll stop there. Oh, yeah, as always. We just keep going. Um, one of the, so one of the reasons why Jesus is different from you know, any myth or even any real historical person who might suffer and die and have some sort of a following. Um, Jesus knows from the beginning what he's setting out to do, right? So Jesus says all along the way, the Son of Man must be given over into the hands of men and be crucified and buried and on the third day rise. So he knows what's going to happen. And in fact, he comes here now to the woman who anoints him and he knows what she's anointing him for. The, peop- the disciples, you know, we, it's, it's low-hanging fruit to bash on them, right? They don't understand what's going on. But think about it. If you don't understand that Jesus is going to die or that he knows he's going to die, then it is, um, it is just a lavish waste, right? Here he, here he is, um, has been complaining about the scribes who walk about in long roads and love, love greetings in the marketplace, and here he is sitting here, and this woman is doing to him what he, you know, would be the last thing that he wants. But in fact, it is precisely what he wants because he, he knows that he's going to die. And moreover, and this is the key, um, he knows that he's dying as a sacrifice, right? So it's not just some, he's not Socrates dying a noble death, you know, drinking the, the hemlock um, to stand up for educating the youth and for truth. Um, he's dying as a sacrifice, which again, this is the thing that sets Jesus apart because notice not only does he know he's going to die, he knows how he's going to come to his death, right? One of you is going to betray me, he says. 
as they're all sitting around. One of you is going to betray me. And then what is the very next thing he does after he says that? What's the very next thing? Yeah. Institutes the Lord's Supper. One of you is going to betray me. What's the next thing he does? He hands over his body and blood to the one who's going to betray him. Right? Um, which nobody would ever do. Nobody, no, no uh, mythological god, no noble man would ever, knowing that he's going to be betrayed, hand himself over into the hands of ones who are going to betray him. Um, but that's precisely what he does because, again, he understands that this is a sacrifice, which is why the Passover context is so important. Let me pause just for a second, though. Do you have any questions? Is there anything that stood out to you, Krista? Go ahead. Because I just want to start to pay because Jesus said, and they will hate me, and they will hate you. Yeah. And that's today. That's right. Yeah. The world can't make sense of it, right? You can't make sense of it. And especially the persecuted Christians. Right. Right. Uh, countries, and sometimes you think our uh, will take over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, if we really do understand that Jesus is on the cross bringing, he's inaugurating the end, right? The birth pangs have become, has be, have begun, which is the temple curtain being torn in two, the earth splitting open, the dead, some of them who, who were dead have, you know, rose and walked about. The birth pangs have begun. Creation, which has been groaning uh, for the coming of, of the Lord, it's begun. Um, this is the tribulation that we are, we have since been in the tribulation that he's been talking that he talked about, right? So we shouldn't be. This is, you know, an important thing to note. We shouldn't be surprised. In fact, we should we shouldn't be as surprised when we're persecuted as Christians, and we should always bear in mind the blessings that Jesus promises to those who are persecuted for His name's sake. We just read them, right? All Saints Day, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil about you on my account. Um, why? Why are you blessed when you're meek or poor or lowly or mourning? Um, why? It's because Jesus delivers to your faith the fulfillment of his promises. So when you hope in him, he gives you exactly what he's promised to give you. So um, the Beatitudes are meaningful. They're, they're meaningless to the world, right? So the world says, no, the meek are not blessed. No, the lowly are not blessed. They're clearly not blessed. They're clearly the opposite of blessed. Uh, but for the faithful who see that Jesus, out of meekness and poverty and persecution and death even, can bring salvation, um, we who hear those promises trust that Jesus will carry it through. Um, Carol, what were you going to say? Um, first yeah. I told you wherever the gospel is proclaimed, you know, in my mind I'm thinking the gospel is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, when people go out and hear Jesus is going to say, well, this is something else that's happening in the future. Yeah. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? I'm, I'm not sure I quite... Oh, okay. I... He, uh, in 13, everything is... Yeah. Turmoil. Right, right. We've got this turmoil. Maybe so, maybe not. I don't recall his using the word gospel. Right, yeah. Right. But, you know, the good news. Yeah. Well... 
Yeah, where's the good news in all of this? Yeah, no, that's right, right. And that's how, the, so it not, so Jesus, I don't know that Jesus has used it before, but the, this is how the book begins, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which encompasses everything from beginning to end. Um, and then, and so here's, you know, this, this note about blessing, right? This woman who's done this remarkable, faithful thing, right? Because she's not just wantonly pouring out her perfume. She's anointing him for his burial. She's acting out of faith. Um, and that, that, that sort of uh, outrageous thing that she's done, this thing that flies in the face of of what everybody sees and observes about the situation, everybody's expectations, right? Why would you anoint him for burial if he dies, this is over, right? She trusts the promise that's been given, right? That he's going to not remain dead and that he's dying as, that he's dying as a sacrifice. And that gospel yeah. brings us all to communities. That's right. Yeah, I mean, this is you, yeah. right? Not just a death, yeah. but there has to be Right. Yeah, I mean, this is why, I mean, this, so th- you can put yourself in the, in the place of this woman every Sunday when you're here doing these bizarre things in the divine service, right? Kneeling at the altar and eating bread and wine, um, which could have, you know, we buy a lot of wine. <laughs> could have been sold and given to the poor, right? Um, the point is, you're doing, you're doing what Jesus has given you to do, and it's outrageous, but you do it because... Um, the only hope that you have in life is to believe what Jesus said. <laughs> not everything else is going to fall. Everything else is going to fail you. The only hope you have is to believe what Jesus said. And it's not a hope, you know, against all hope. It's not like tossing up, as Martin Luther said about prayer, it's not like tossing up rocks into a plum tree and hoping that you hit something. It's hope that's been secured by Jesus' resurrection, right? Um, so when we get to the crucifixion, if that's the end of the story... That's the end of the story, right? We've got nothing, nothing else going for us. But because it's not, and because the people who heard and knew the gospel that Mark is telling them, who heard about this woman, because they saw Jesus and heard what he said to them and believed um, everything that he said in his resurrected flesh and blood, that's why the church exists, right? So think about what a, if you took this, if you just took this text, this Markan text here with the Passover and the Lord's Supper and you just read the whole thing from beginning to end, and you said, okay, so now what do we do? You probably wouldn't say to yourself, okay, we should get together every Sunday and eat and drink bread and wine and say it's Jesus' body and blood, because it's, it's, uh, it's hard to pull out of the context. But the church did that because the church knew the, knew the whole story and knew what this message was doing. It was confirming uh, what Jesus had given to them. It was confirming and carrying forward his resurrection into the world, and that's why Jesus instituted it. And she loved him. That's right. She loved him. She trusted him. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Donna. When Jesus said before that, truly I say to you, you are down to know that this is really significant. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He's always asking the disciples to just reset, restart. You think. Yeah. Stay away. Right. I don't know how many times, four or five times, he says that to the disciples. Yeah. But at the same time, um, it says somewhere in the Gospels, somewhere I thought I read that 
they were kept, their eyes were kept from seeing or really understanding all that was going on. And I often wondered why was that? Was, was they being shielded from what was going to happen in, in a certain way? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not... Because he warned them so many times. Right. One of the things that you see there is this, this sort of conflict between their faith and their understanding, right? So they fail to understand all along the way, as we do, fail to understand the gospel, what, what on earth is going on in our lives. Um, we fail to understand these things. The disciples are exemplars of faith because what do they do? They follow Jesus. They follow Jesus and um, make these, you know, these, as Peter will say, look, everybody's going to abandon you and, it, and I will never abandon you and I will die with you, right? In fact, um, I mean, that's a statement of faith. He's getting out over his skis, right? Because he can't, he can't do that and he will, he'll fail to do that. Um, but it shows you sort of the split between their faith and their understanding. They think they understand right now and in fact, when they think they understand, um, that often hinders their faith, Right? The, the good news for any of us then is that Jesus doesn't abandon them in their misunderstanding or in their, their um, poverty of faith. Um, that's precisely when he comes to them and strengthens them and brings them through, right? Um, which is, you know, all along the way to point out the character of faith for us. It's a gift. It's not something that we muster up, right? Um, yeah, okay. Any other questions or thoughts, Betsy? Yeah, I don't know if this has an answer, but um, in chapter 13, it says that concerning that day or hour, um, the angels in heaven and the sun don't know but only the Father. Yeah. So how is, how is that possible that the sun doesn't know Right. Of one mind. Yeah. So, uh, well, so there's two things to, to note, for instance. One, the first is just that Mark is really keen on showing us Jesus' humanity, right? Um, because uh, the death of some divine, some, some only divine uh, being doesn't save humanity. He needs to be human in order to die on behalf of humanity. And so Mark is set out you know, to show us that from beginning to end. Um, and what does it mean then for Jesus to take on humanity? So what is it in Philippians... Um, Paul says he didn't grasp at he uh, boy I'm drawing a blank on how it goes now right he didn't he didn't uh, let me find it talking about the humiliation of Jesus he did not consider it yeah thank you let's see here a thing to be grasped yeah did not consider himself did not consider equality with God Philippians two Verses, let's take a look. I'll just read it for you here. Five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, right? So he was God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. which means that he set aside the things that belong properly to divinity. For instance, immortality, right? So if he can die, then he can also not know things, right? Um, It's mind-boggling because he doesn't stop being divine, but as he is 
um, suffering the humiliation of uh, being a sacrifice for humanity, he sets aside the things that are, that are proper to divinity, doesn't consider them something to be grasped at. Um, and then this is, so I think back again to the, the story of the widow and her, and her two mites, right? She gave having nothing to give. She gave and she, hadn't, she had nothing to give. And even what she had, those two pennies didn't belong to her. They belonged to God, right? So well, oftentimes she's set up as a, as a type of Jesus, right? Look, gives everything that she has. But it's, Jesus is even more remarkable, of course, because he had everything. Absolutely everything belongs properly to him. All authority in heaven and earth. I mean, this is a key that comes at the end of the gospel, right? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, right? So he, re- he takes back his the things that belong to his divinity, and then he gives this command, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, um, because he has been glorified again. But that, so that widow gave, having nothing to give, Jesus gives everything, um, sets aside the things that belong to him by his nature um, it, for our sake. I mean, it's just, this is Psalm 8 that we, that, from which the prayer came before class. He... Um, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right? What are we that you would set aside the, the glory that you had from eternity um, to be humiliated and to not know things that you should, you know, should know, right? To, to not, be, not be able to say, I don't know when the hour comes. Yeah. So does he know now that he's been exalted? Yes. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the proper answer should be, I don't know. But if I was going to... There you go. Right. If I was going to reason things out logically, I would say, yeah, he's been glorified. Everything's been restored to him. Um, but I don't know. I guess I don't know. So, yeah. Other questions you have? So I was always wondering, you know, where are they in Who, who do you mean by they? Oh, yeah. So he's so he's created created the universe, right? The universe is a creation. So that means God's existence is outside of the universe. But here we so this is an important thing to remember about talking about God, and also talking about you know just about anything else. Um, our categories are too narrow to understand things. Categories are too narrow. So we think in terms of time and three dimensions, right? We understand space in terms of three dimensions. Um, and we can't, we can't fathom something more than that. It's like uh, one, of my, one of my favorite examples is we see things in three primary colors, right? We, see, we observe the world with three primary colors. Butterflies see the world with like 24 primary colors. Um, we can't imagine what that would be like, um, and we'll never, we will never know. <laughs> we will never know what that's like until, I mean, I don't know about that in particular, but understanding what it means for God to be, or take, for instance, um, his saints who've died, right? We see their, we see their bodies, and that's not, that's, they're not there anymore. Um, where are they? Well, that's in some sense the wrong question, because where? Well, as soon as we say where, we're talking about our categories, yeah. But that's true 
That's true across the board. And one, ways, one of the ways this is actually really, really important for us is in the sacrament, right? So we can ask the same question. How is Jesus here on the altar? And the church has gone wrong every time it's tried to force Jesus into our categories and say, well, um, it must be that he looks like bread, but some sort of uh, ideal or behind the real- behind what's visible is a reality that we can't see, and that's the, that's the body. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's an exercise in futility because it's, we need a new category. And this is, what, this is one of the most helpful things that the Lutherans, that Luther did, is to say, when we're talking about things that God does, we need to just use his categories and not try to force them into our categories. So Luther said, it's a sacramental presence. He's not present on the altar in the way that, you know, I'm standing right here in this room and you could come up and bite off my finger, right? It's not like that. Neither is he... Um, I know that's weird to say. I know. I'm sorry. I was just... Because that's the thing that... That's the uh, way that they thought about it was... They asked the question, are we actually... I mean, like, I'm like chewing on a piece of Jesus' finger, right? No. Um, he's present in a different way. But, but what we're going to say is what Jesus said. So the same body and blood as present as they were to the disciples, as really physically present as they were to the disciples, are present to us, because this is what Jesus says. But they're also not physically really present in the same way that I'm present. It's different. It's a different kind of presence. Um, you, can't sacrifice, you can't sacrifice either side of it. You need to maintain both of them. Krista. Uh, <clears throat> I, I thought I have the answer in this way. In our Lord's Prayer, and uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Yeah. And I think that's heaven, uh, what, uh, whatever we, uh, we think about it, but this is what Jesus said to us. Right. And, and so you get on to a, a really important thing there um, and when we talk about Jesus' kingdom, right? So kingdoms that we observe have borders, right? And they have, you can put them on a map and you can define rules for them, and they have a, um, a visible king sitting on a throne. Jesus' kingdom is not like that. His kingdom is wherever he is. Where is Jesus? Wherever his word is proclaimed, right? He's at the right hand of the Father. There he is in heaven. He's, he is also, or maybe not even also, in the same way he is wherever his word is proclaimed. He's not in two different places. He's in one place, which is everywhere his word is, um, and that's why, that's why when we pray, thine is the kingdom, or thy kingdom come, what we're praying is that God would you know, bust into this world, apart from our categories, and um, bring, bring his kingdom with us, with him. Who was raising their hand over here? Aaron. I was, I was just going to follow what you were saying. Like, this stuff feels so confusing. But I didn't really think people go to early Lord's Supper. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And it, and um and they have all the I love it. They've got all of the stories to back it up too. Right. So that's how that's the way Jesus has always done things from the very beginning. Right. This is how he made the world. How did he make the world? He said it, and it happened. This is obvious, right? But I love and I love. I mean, the kids often have this look on their face, like, "Why are you asking me such a stupid question?" Why? This is just silly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Barb. That's faith. Yes, 
Exactly. That's right. And, and everybody else is Christ in them. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, this is, I mean, you're, the way you describe faith is just is so critical. This is, in Hebrews, faith, you know, you know this really well, I'm sure. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And, and the author of the Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews, illustrates that by taking us first to Abraham, right? So Abraham is this moon worshiper in the land of, in the land of Ur, right? Or is that Job? I can't remember now. He's somewhere near Canaan, right? And um, God appears to him out of nowhere and says, okay, take up your household and go. And I'm going to, give you, I'm going to send you to this promised land. And along, all along the way, Abram, Abram has um, lots of good reasons not to believe God. Yeah? Doesn't have any offspring. God tells him to kill his son. Um, and, and yet, Abraham is the man of faith because... Because he believes God. He trusts him. And God doesn't put him to shame. That's like that, that's I mean, the psalmist David David gives voice to this. Uh, something that really I think is a an articulation of stuff something that we kind of suffer often is the fear that we're going to be put to shame. The fear that we're going to find out that we've believed for, for no reason. That we believed something. Take your pick, any any of the things we believe for no reason. Um, David is always praying to God that he would not be put to shame because that's precisely what his enemies are saying to him. You trusted in God, you know, let him come and help you. And crickets, right? Just like Jesus on the cross, if you are the son of God, take yourself down from there. He's, put, he's, he's apparently put to shame, right? His faith and his confidence in God appears to be for no reason at, at all. Um, but the vindication comes in God's time, in God's time, and he will not let you be put to shame. Um, yeah. Which is, I mean... Again, that's faith. And, and it's important to know, as, as Luther says in the explanation to the third article, right? I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe. So when you think about faith, um, always understand that when you do believe, or as you believe, that's a gift that's been given to you. Because you wouldn't have been able to do it on your own. You wouldn't have been able to make sense. You would have tried to make sense of it, and you would have said, this doesn't make sense. So when you miraculously believe, thank God, because that anybody believes is is in fact a miracle. Um, which really, you know, sheds valuable light on how we carry on in the world and in the church, right? So um, we, don't have to, we don't have to take into our hands the challenges of trying to convince people of things or, um, yeah, or, or be persuasive. Of course, you know, we want to be persuasive and we want to convince people and we want to handle their objections deftly, but we, want, we finally understand that we can't can't create that that uh, that motion that the Holy Spirit has to create. There is no there is no sort of like little spark in there in somebody that we need to just you know breathe a little life into. There is nothing. Jesus needs to come along and light that from the from the beginning. Kathy. Yeah, in thirteen, well maybe it was just the way he said it. Uh, Jesus said, "Don't you're going to stand before people and you're going to have to." Yeah. Make a case, but don't don't even think about beforehand what you're going to say. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good luck not thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and the... <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, so I mean, it does. It does. I think it gives incredible weight to 
But things that we often really just sort of take for granted, the idea that he's equipping us all along in these really ordinary ways. I mean, when you just, when you read the Bible, he's equipping you. Um, and we should take that seriously. So that when, I mean, I think often now about when Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God, um, it, can be, it can be turned into this really sort of pietistic, you've got to be super devout and you have to, you know, be reading the scriptures and have them memorized all the time. Of course, having the scriptures memorized and reading them all the time is a great thing. But the point is that by doing this um, really kind of mundane thing, this thing that, that feels at times quite mundane, um, of studying the scriptures, of, of hearing Jesus' promises, that is um, freighted with such power so that he says of it, you can, with, with, you know, with the word of God, you can defeat all the, all the darts of the devil, all the flaming arrows of the devil. You've got nothing to worry about. And this is the reason why you can go before the powers and principalities and authorities without, any, without preparation. The trouble, the, the thing to guard against, and this is why Jesus says watch or stay awake, the idea is to think that we don't need, we don't need that uh, armor. We don't need that preparation. Or we don't need his preparation or his guarantees. Or that it's not going to, I mean, really, finally, the thinking that it's not going to happen, that we're not going to face temptations that require um, his protection. That, I mean, that's to me one of the most, one of the scariest things. And I see this, you know, in myself. Um, the idea that I'm, that I'm up for whatever challenges are coming. Um, but you do, for one thing, you don't know what they're going to be. Um, and you might be, you might be able to handle the things that you think you can handle, but there are lots of things that you're, <laughs> lots of temptations. The devil knows how to get to you. Um, you don't have to be afraid. You just have to arm yourself with what God has given you. Aaron. Um, something my husband and I have been talking about is that phrase that people use that Christians use often. God will never give you more than you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not what it says. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, and I mean, obviously we believe that God doesn't allow us to be crushed. Right. But it's like, yeah, right. With every temptation, he provides a way out. And the way out is the same way that he's been using all along, his words, so that he, when he says it, it happens. It's, not, it's nothing else. Um, right. Um, and, you, and here is another key, too. You're gonna, you may feel like you're being crushed. You, and that's part of the... That's part of the the, the temptation. Um, Luther, I mean, Luther talks about it as, as crawling back to your baptism. So you should expect your whole life to be like that, crawling back to your baptism. Why are you crawling? Because you've been knocked down. You've been knocked down. The, um, the Roman Catholic Church talked about baptism and penance in this way. They said baptism is like um, getting on a ship and then when you sin, the ship is shipwrecked, broken to pieces. And penance, coming to confession, is like grabbing onto a couple of the pieces of wood that are floating along, around after the ship has been shipwrecked. So you got that picture in your head? Um, Luther says, no, no. Baptism is the ship. And the ship is never shipwrecked. Sometimes you jump over the edge. Sometimes you jump over the edge. But look, the ship is still there. Just swim back to it. Which doesn't mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of ways to contort that, right? Swimming back to it means 
believing what Jesus said in your baptism. You're his child. He's, he's, uh, you are his beloved with you. He is well pleased. Um, that is, I mean, this is why, so when next time in your church, I mean, I'm sure you've done this before, but t- turn your head upside down and look at the architecture, right? You see up in the roof of the sanctuary, it's the bottom of a boat. This is your ship, the nave, right? Um, it's, the, it's the most certain thing you got in your life. Holly. That's right. It's the, yeah, it is. I mean, and it's, um, that's one of the great things about, about reading scripture is that you see it everywhere. It is everywhere. This is the story. Um, the reason why we are broken or why we are not forsaken, why we are um, not destroyed, not crushed, is because that happened already. That happened. You were buried with Christ. Your death has already come to pass. Um, and so now, I mean, and this is this is the posture of faith, to look at yourself and say, I am aging, and my body is breaking, and I'm dying, and my life um, is not getting better. And the more relationships you have, the, the more broken relationships you experience. I see all of those things, and yet I know that um, I'm living a life that is, not, that is, that is running in the opposite direction. So you see, you see in yourself and in the people around you only decline, only a downward trend. But you know by faith that you are, you're on this upward path. Um, that's, why, that's why, I mean, the early Christians were such a remarkable uh, puzzlement to the pagans, to the Romans, because they lived with hope. They buried their dead and they um, loved their enemies and they, um, they were joyous even as they were persecuted. Because they, they, they knew something that nobody else knew. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, I, we, don't, we don't suffer that kind of persecution right now, but um, we should take seriously the idea that one way or another, we will, individually and corporately, and we should spend our time now gearing up for joy, right? Preparing for that. Which is what we're doing. I mean, this is the point. This is why we're here right now. So good work. Okay, we should get going. Unless you have anything else, any other questions? Kathy. I just had, uh, you know, as I watched my parents decline, uh, what was comforting to me was Second Corinthians 5. We do not, while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we don't wish to be unclothed. Um, which to me always seemed like that's the control freak in Yep. <laughs> that's right. Cover up your, your decay. Yeah. Uh, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed in our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Yeah. So it's not, you know, decay. I mean, it is decay. 
but you're being swallowed up by life. That's right. So that's like really cool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it is. I mean, it is the coolest thing. Yeah. Just so dis- destroyed by stuff because you, they don't realize you're being swallowed up by life. Yeah. When you're in Christ, you were, were connected to His suffering, so we're going to suffer. And we should count it joy to be that He's there with us. He's cemented with us in these sufferings. So I'm like, should we? I don't have to like keep clothing myself. Or, yeah. Working so hard, trying to figure everything out. Right. Very tired. I mean, that's one of the great joys of heaven, right? So think about think about the the obstacles. I think about this all the time. The obstacles, the things that get in way of of faith, right? So our own just silly efforts to deny the fact that we're dying. Ah. (laughs) All the ways we do that. Someday we just we're not going to have to try so hard anymore. We're not going to have to try at all to cover that up. And all of the, the ways that we are responsible for the, the, the pain um, around us and all of our sins that have hurt other people, um, we can't fix them. You can't, and, in some, and you can't undo them in many cases. Um, you can't undo them. And that's the great joy of, of heaven is, you know, on the one hand, of course, no more tears, no more sorrow, but also no, you do, you're not going to be hurting anybody anymore. Um, which is a really that's one of the best one of the best promises. So look forward to that. It'll be great. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Come back next week for more. Yeah, thank you.